All I have to say is beware when updating your driver for your microphone. On your computer, if everything works, do not, out of for no reason at all, update your microphone driver. I used to do sound production. I spent about 10 years trying to figure out how to make proper techno. I should know better because I know how finicky these devices, these drivers in particular, and the driver is where the the software meets the hardware. So it's a very important piece of the puzzle in the nexus of your microphone and your operating system, your hardware and your operating system. But I think, you know, after updating my whole operating system and everything, I believe things are getting better. We shall see through the recording of this show. We have a very exciting show prepared for you. We have Jeffrey Christian, who waxes philosophical on complexity and the markets. Uh, A very illuminating discussion with Jeffrey Christian. And uh, he talks about how central banks are buying gold, which is significant, but, 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 but for gold really to take its next leg up, it will need investor demand. And as we've seen, gold has been a bit of a disappointment for a lot of people, silver as well, in the last 12 months, especially as the markets and crypto and everything is rocketing higher and even industrial commodities. It's sort of, and when we've had inflation and the one thing, the go-to investment supposedly for inflation was supposed to be gold and silver and it's been fairly flat. The markets do like to be somewhat ironic, don't they? As I say, this is a news cycle in search of a narrative. I keep thinking we're waiting. I feel like I'm at the theater waiting for the actors to take the stage, waiting for the drama to begin. And it's actually one of my favorite times, maybe my favorite moment in the theater. I grew up in the theater. My grandma was a costume designer for Shakespeare on the Saskatchewan in Saskatoon. She was there from the second year. And so I've been going to the theater a long time. And that feeling of electricity before the drama begins is one of my all-time favorite moments and that I like coming back to again and again and again. More than the drama is the electricity, the potential of what might occur. And so I look at this, you know, this September, Jeffrey predicts, I mean, or shall I say projects, he prefers to say projects, he pre- he thinks there's going to be some volatility. I mean, September's half over, so let's see what happens here. Again, I feel like the drama has yet to begin. Yeah, so anyway, a very interesting show. Uh, we've got some great stories coming up as well, and we also have a CEO Spotlight interview with Canada Silver Cobalt Works, Inc. We have CEO Frank Baza, and we also have Matt Holliday, who is president of Canada Silver Cobalt Works, Inc., and they talk about their Castle Silver Mine in northern Ontario, about 70 kilometers south of Kirkland Lake, so a very interesting area. Sounds like a very bountiful mine, so we are going to hear from them right away. And if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner, and you can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. And you can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, 
including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to our CEO spotlight with Canada Silver Cobalt Works CEO Frank Baza and President Matt Holliday. Okay, so joining me today on today's CEO Spotlight, I have Frank Baza, who is CEO of Canada Silver Cobalt Works Inc., and Matt Holliday, who is the president. And they are going to tell us about the Castle Silver Mine in Ontario that they're working on. So, Frank and Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you, Adrian. It's well, a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you as well. I mean, cobalt is uh, seems like a kind of a exciting metal these days with all of the EV, the electric vehicle boom that seems to be happening. Um, so tell us, so so what are you working on at the Castle Silvermine? What kind of project do you have? Uh, well, what's exciting about it? The Castle Silvermine was actually a mine that Agnico Eagle had uh, when I worked for Agnico Eagle in the late 80s. It was actually the highest grade uh, silver mine that they were operating at that time. And then uh, the price of silver collapsed. Uh, you know, they shut down the mining operations here in Ontario. All of their uh, cobalt assets were basically disposed of. And we managed to pick up the castle mine for about $25,000. So what we did was we uh, we also went underground. You know, it's one of the few mines in the camp. Actually, the only mine in the camp that has been accessed underground. And so we did a bit of exploring underground. And we felt that uh, there's still a lot of potential. We did a drill program. Uh, we also dumped some of the stoves. And lo and behold, we found a lot of silver. And we also found a lot of cobalt. And then uh, we followed up on the drill hole that we did in 2011. Uh, you know, we put um, a camera down hole, got the orientation of the vein. We drilled it. And lo and behold, we found a fair amount of silver. So the cobalt camp is known. And if you look at it at the turn of the last century, it was the highest grade operating area in the world actually produced a lot of silver but the cobalt was never really recovered uh, so uh, we uh, did a major discovery we call it the robinson zone since then uh, we had uh, we've done about a 40,000 meters of drilling or 60,000 meter drill program it's kind of our first stage we're planning to do a ramp uh, the reason we do a ramp in the camp uh, the camp is known for whatever you drill and then you mined and mill has a tendency of being an order of multitude of multiplication, so to speak. For example, the castle mine, the grade was 23 ounces a ton. When they mined and milled it, it came back a little under 80 ounces a ton. So right now we have, uh, of course, the highest grade mine, silver mine in the world. It's about 252 ounces a ton for about 7 million ounces. So our intent is to increase the resource. Uh, we're fairly confident we'll be able to increase it. Within two kilometers of our discovery, about 70 million ounces of silver have been mined. And of course, a lot of cobalt, nickel, and copper recovered, but uh, nothing was produced from the product. Uh, so we're looking at, of course, increasing our resource. Uh, we have also looking at uh, producing a cobalt product. Uh, we've already done that. We have a process called the Re2Ox. We were actually in Asia. We spent a fair amount of time with the Chinese and the Japanese. We met with Nissan in Japan. And we also met with Somito. So about three years ago, uh, we used the Retuox process, which uh, SGS and Lakefield actually produce uh, cobalt sulfate on spec for the battery market for the Asian market. So there's a lot of moving parts here, but primarily we're focusing on the silver. Byproduct will be cobalt, 
copper, nickel, and arsenic. Apparently, arsenic is a, a strategic metal for the U.S. They use the arsenic to make copper arsenate as a wood preservative. So basically, that's about it. It's a very simple, straightforward exploration program, underground, bulk sample, or silver. Interesting. So this is a silver play. Would you consider this a silver play more than a cobalt play? It sounds like it from what you just told me. Well, there's a lot of cobalt. Uh, actually, Adrian, there's more cobalt value in the cobalt camp. The town is actually called Cobalt. It was actually named by geologists. Oh, sure. Yeah. And uh, actually, there's a lot of cobalt here. But uh, our intent is to kind of separate the company in two type of uh, structures. One will be primary precious metals. You know, we also picked up a very, uh, what I call, desirable asset next to the uh, Macassa mine, which is being operated by uh, uh, Lake Gold. It's about five kilometers away. That took us almost two years to tie up that land package. So basically, uh, we feel there's something of value there. We'll try to do something we did here at the Castle Mine. So it'll be a, a pure silver gold play. And our intent is to spin out the base metals, which would be the cobalt, nickel, copper, into another shell and uh, the shareholders of ccw will get a dividend we've done this before and the dividend usually comes out as a share and a warrant and uh, when this asset was spun out from our gold play we basically even at 30 cents we gave out six million dollars in dividends over four years and we had uh, of course the stock was up to 80 90 cents so you do the math and uh, so we gave out about 16 million uh, so it's what we call a dynamic dividend it was a share and a warrant. So the shareholders will benefit of uh, CCW when the spin-out occurs for the EV metals. Interesting. So is it a producing mine already? Are you yeah. already profitable or are you talking about a previous no, project? No. There? The, the Castle Mine was actually the most profitable mine that Agnico Eagle Mines had. So we acquired that, like I said, for about $25,000. And then since then, we've added a, our line packages now uh, about uh, 7,800 kilometers or something like that. It's quite large, and we're always adding to the uh, to the land package. Uh, we feel there's a lot of potential here, uh, and, uh, and the previous operators had a very successful operations in the area. So uh, it's uh, our intent is to be, like I said, underground. Uh, probably if we get our, our studies completed first quarter, our environmental studies completed by the first quarter of next year, and uh, we might be underground in the mineralized material by the fourth quarter of next year. And we also have a facility to process the rock. We bought a facility called Tomissing Testing Labs. In its day, the government actually poured all the silver for the camp. So they're able to pour over a million ounces uh, a year. It's a, it's a plant. It's a, it has a, a crusher, ball mill, and a bullion furnace. So we just finished rehabbing the crushers. The bullion furnace we relined about a year ago. So that circuit is ready, good to go right now. So when we're mining, we should be able to pour silver, and we have some results to confirm our, our drill grades. Okay, it sounds like the pieces of the puzzle are all in place, and but there has been no production, just to be clear. No, on there's that no yet production on this. Uh, okay. No, the thing is, okay. uh, we have to we originally we're, we're trying to put the, the castle mine into operation because everything's still there, the infrastructure is there, and and uh, so we did go underground. We rehab 2.7 kilometers of the underground. Uh, there's uh, there's multiple levels. Uh, but we decided let's follow up on this hole that we drilled in 2011. And so uh, the focus has been on the drilling of the hole that, that was done in 2011. Uh, we did get some very good results underground at the Castle Mine. But we thought, let's see if we can expand this this area. It's actually about uh, 
in about two kilometers from the original castle mine. It could be that it's connected to the old workings. I see. So you, you want to take advantage basically of the property the best way you can rather than just yeah. start building uh, and start producing right away. Let's see what's here is the yeah. idea. We're kind of following a, an old model that every successful used in the camp. So, uh, you know, it's a very simple drill, find it. And the old days, you put a shaft down, mine it, and then keep on going. You drill from underground and the, the, the potential of finding stuff drilling underground is a lot greater than drilling from surface. And our costs are lower. It gets to the point where our drill program is more expensive than actually putting a ramp down. And the benefit of having a ramp, you'll drill, plus you can produce product, which would be silver. And, of course, we have a market right now to, uh, for the cobalt that we're going to produce. We have to come up with some sort of resource. So the end buyers have some degree of confidence we can deliver product over a longer period of time. Okay, excellent. Now, and and since we have Matt here as well... Uh, so tell me about uh, the region and the politics, and I, I assume you guys are working with Aboriginal groups, and it sounds like if you're close to Cobalt, Ontario, I mean, there must be pretty good infrastructure. Matt, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, the, the region is a great region to be working in, um, you know, in terms of politics and, and uh, the different First Nations. Um, you know, we're working quite closely with the uh, Metachewan First Nation and, and the Tamagami First Nation. Um, and that's going really well. I mean, you know, we've continued to have a consultation. We've brought them to the site. Um, you know, most recently, uh, we've, we've toured around, um, the site and getting in, in preparations for helping everybody in the community understand what we want to accomplish, particularly with putting a ramp down in the future and, and rehabilitating the castle mine. Yeah, the whole region. I mean, it's an excellent region to be to be in, particularly in in terms of uh, the people that we have available here. So you know, we're only 39 kilometers uh, as the crow flies from Matachuan, which has a a large gold mine. Uh, we're only about 90 kilometers away from Kirkland Lake Gold or Kirkland Lake, the town itself. So you know, when it comes down to infrastructure, access to to people, tradesmen, you know, we're we're really blessed. We're in a great community, and uh, I think we're garnishing a lot of support from from the local communities in, in terms of. Uh, I think everyone wants to see these types of projects succeed. Uh, so it's a it's a really good spot. The roadmap is is basically. We want to continue to develop our resources, so we'll be having a resource update coming out uh, the first quarter of next year. And that's a critical step because that will allow us to rejig the preliminary um, ramp design that we have currently to date. So we do have a, a prelim ramp design. And with that and the rejigging that we'll have have happened after the next resource update, you know, we'll use the scope of work to be able to tender to the contract miners. We have initiated an environmental baseline study that happened in February of this year um, and the preliminary work going back to last year. So the baseline study is coming to uh, the data collection is coming to an end, basically quarter one, quarter two of next year. And so in advance of that, we're working on the permitting stage because this will be a fresh ramp. It'll be a brand new project. And uh, the permitting stage, we're moving into the drafts um, this autumn. And we will be uh, hopefully finalizing those permits by quarter two next year. And, you know, potentially we'll be breaking ground um, in quarter three or quarter four. Uh, finally, just tell me about the international interest and what's going on there. Are people 
are they interested in the cobalt? I assume they are, but uh, wh where's the interest coming from? Well, uh, I, um, what we've done here, Adrian, we actually traveled uh, through Asia and uh, just recently in the last few weeks, we also talked to people in South Korea. So about three years ago, we met with the Chinese and the Japanese, and we also met with the Europeans, specifically the Germans. Now, uh, the reality is there's a critical shortage of cobalt, and I think even if they got all the cobalt out of the DRC, there's still a critical shortage of cobalt. One of the critical things was, can you produce product? Now, the cobalt camp itself is known for a fair amount of arsenic. So we did develop a process called the Retuox, and we've tested it with the people at SGS, and we did meet specs for the Somito uh, uh, cobalt sulfate that they want. The Chinese also uh, want uh, cobalt sulfate, but their specs are not as demanding. Basically, they need two things. They need a certain amount of cobalt in it, but they also need a certain amount of impurities or levels on the impurities have to be quite low. Uh, so you get a bit of a premium uh, selling to the Japanese, but the demands are quite high. And the Germans, uh, we've kind of talked to them on and off over the years, but they don't mind whatever you can produce, we will take. So there's a fairly large interest. Uh, we're looking at the North American corridor. We've been talking to a fair amount of people in North American corridor, but the North American corridor is not advanced as the, as the Asian market or the European market. Uh, so we are knocking on a few doors. We haven't got any spec sheets from anybody yet in North America, but I think the North American market might end up being much larger than the um, Asian or the European market. It's mostly going to end up in the States, I think. And uh, I think uh, uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens, but uh, we're ready for them. We're just waiting for spec sheets. Uh, and it's not just uh, the cobalt. Uh, they want a fair amount of nickel, which we also have. And uh, and uh, some of the other things they've asked us for, we have to see uh, how much of an interest they have. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Frank Baza, CEO of Canada Silver Cobalt Works, Inc., and Matt Holliday, the president of Canada Silver Cobalt Works, Inc. Thank you for joining us on the Northern Miner podcast, and uh, we hope to see you again. Thank, thank you very much, Adrian. And turning to the website, we have a story with BHP who has signed an exploration deal with Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos-backed Kobold. We had a story about a month ago. I remember when I was in Bologna, we were talking about that. We were talking about how Silicon Valley is starting to get into mining and how big of a deal that is. That Those stories got quite a bit of play on Twitter as well, so there is definitely interest in that. So this is by Cecilia Jamazmi. BHP has struck a deal to use artificial intelligence tools developed by Kobold Metals, a startup backed by a coalition of billionaires, including Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, to look for critical materials used in electric vehicles and clean energy. And it says here the world's largest miner and the Silicon Valley-based tech firm will jointly fund and operate exploration using data processing technology to help predict the location of metals such as cobalt, nickel, and copper starting in Western Australia. The partnership will help BHP find more of the future-facing commodities it has vowed to focus on while offering Cobalt an opportunity to access exploration databases built up by the mining giant over decades. Like they say, data is the new oil, so it'll be interesting here. I mean, BHP is giving away quite a bit if they're opening up their databases. And we have a quote from Keenan Jennings, vice president at BHP Metals Exploration, who said in a statement, quote, 
Globally, shallow ore deposits have largely been discovered, and remaining resources are likely deeper underground and harder to see from surface. This alliance will combine historical data, artificial intelligence, and geoscience expertise to uncover what has previously been hidden. Kobold, founded in 2018, counts among its backers big names such as venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz and Breakthrough Energy Ventures. The latter is financed by well-known billionaires including Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, Bloomberg founder Michael Bloomberg, and Ray Dalio and Richard Branson. Kobold, as its chief executive officer, Kurt House, has stated multiple times, does not intend to be a mine operator, quote, ever. Yes, as I like to say, they'll leave the dirty work to you. They will simply process your data, collect a good portion of your royalties, and say thank you very much. You notice how they have, uh, it's like they want to get into mining, but they want to do it with the electric vehicles and clean energy as the supposed motive. And I just simply, I don't say it's untrue, I just call that into question. I think they see an opportunity in mining because it's one of the kind of least disrupted sectors of the economy, one could argue, with the arguably the biggest potential for riches. And I think that has a lot to do with this as well. Uh, and finally, last month, Kobold signed a joint venture agreement with Blue Jay Mining to explore minerals in Greenland. And finally, the firm aims to create a Google Maps of the Earth's crust with a special focus on finding cobalt deposits. It collects and analyzes multiple streams of data from old drilling results to satellite imagery to better understand where new deposits might be found. So there you have it. Uh, Gates and Bezos and Bloomberg and Branson are getting involved in the mining industry but keeping their hands clean in the process. Turning to our next story, uh, Norant has received an official offer from Wailu, which is trumping the BHP bid. And we've touched on this story a few times. And Wailu had made a new offer, but then Norant said they wanted it to be formalized. So Wailu has formalized that offer. And the 70 cents per share offer trumps BHP's friendly 55 cents per share bid for Norant made in July. And this is for a property in the Ring of Fire. And the new offer from Wailu is more than double the 31 and a half cents they offered in May. Now, this sort of speaks to my point that I was saying when I think we first came across this story was how ridiculously cheap this property was. Like we don't, I don't know if I see it in this story, but it was something like, like if we look back here, let me just do a search. I don't see what the offer is worth. And that would be very nice to know. Let me go back. We have the BHP offer here, which was, they upped it to $258 million in July. So again, like $258 million. And this is ring of fire based material. You just heard... Canada Silver Cobalt Works, and you just heard how much stuff they have in the ground in northern Ontario. They have cobalt, and these are crucial metals, and again, what what is $258 million to BHP? That's why Wailu has doubled its, more than doubled its offer only a few months later, because they say, hey, like, I, I can't believe that this is even available for this little money, Okay. That's what I see going on here. I think uh, people see uh, a treasure chest here going at a flea market for pennies on the dollar. That's what I see going on here. Continuing on, 
And we have a new story from Northern Dynasty, the latest in their 15-year saga, to try and create a mine beside a salmon fishery. Here we go again, reacts Northern Dynasty's Ron Thiessen on EPA permitting process. So this is by Henry Lazenby, and... Uh, Quote, here we go again, end quote, said Northern Dynasty Minerals President and CEO Ron Thiessen in reaction to news last week that the Biden administration will reconsider preemptively vetoing the company's flagship pebble copper gold mine in Alaska. It was, quote, unfortunate that the politics continues to interfere with scientific evidence, end quote, said Thiessen in a September 10th statement. So this seems a little disingenuous to me, as it seemed like, you know, the previous administration was being political as well. I don't know. I find Ron Thiessen totally tone deaf uh, to basically, uh, you know, like I almost don't even want to read this because it's just, uh, to me, so disingenuous what Ron Thiessen is, is saying here, just editorializing here. Under President Joe Biden, we once again find ourselves dealing with Obama-era policies that were inappropriate then and are inappropriate now. We fought and won against former President Obama's heavy-handed political attempts to kill the project, and we will do the same again. You know, just anecdotally, I know people who are very conservative and, you know, who are very against this project. I mean, so I find this all very disingenuous. I mean, Donald Trump Jr. was also very against this project. And now Ron Thiessen is trying to turn this into a Democrat-Republican fight. You know, this whole thing. Yeah, it's uh, the, you know, I used to laugh at this being kind of a soap opera, but now it's just kind of, uh, now it's just a, a small group of people desperately trying to shake some money out of the ground at any cost. Okay, that's what I see here, just editorializing. It was politics arguably a year ago when they got the green light that let them continue. So was it scientific evidence? I mean... We can say what we want. Everybody can have their views, say, of the Trump administration, but scientific evidence was not their forte. I think a lot of us could agree on, not to delve into politics, but to start saying now we have no scientific evidence. So, I mean, you can think what you will on this. I definitely have a very strong opinion against this. And again, it says here, another major project in limbo. I, you know... Uh, I don't see this actually as super political. I don't see this as anti-mining. I see this as pro-keeping uh, pristine areas pristine. That's what this is about. So this whole narrative that this is all about uh, an overzealous Democrat government, that's my issue here. This is about keeping, you know, is nothing sacred, that's that's my point. I am editorializing. So this is not just another major project in limbo, okay? From my perspective, this is a pretty big deal. So there we go. Northern Dynasty continues on their journey. And we have an interesting merger and acquisition story. This is by Northern Miner staff. Gold Royalty is acquiring a BTP royalties and Golden Valley Mines and Royalties in a deal that will create a larger company with 191 royalties and a balance sheet, about $47 million in cash and in debt. The business combination will have a significant presence in two of the world's top tier mining jurisdictions, Nevada and Quebec, 
with about 150 of the 191 royalties situated in these locations and includes four royalties on portions of the Canadian Malarctic Mine, now owned by Agnico Eagle and Yamana Gold. These include a 3% net smelter return royalty on the producing Canadian Malarctic Pit Mine and a 3% NSR on the Canadian Malarctic Underground Development Asset. So that's a company maker right there. You may remember gold royalty from the Global Mining Symposium. David Garofalo is the president and CEO, and he said the consolidation will establish the company as the leading growth in America's focused precious metals royalty company. And we have a quote. We're quite thrilled to announce this transaction as it continues the rapid development of gold royalty. We only just IPO'd in March. We just completed a merger with Eli Gold a couple of weeks ago, and we're adding on strength upon strength with the completion of this transaction over the next couple of weeks. So that is Gold Royalty making moves. And finally, a couple of just quick diamond headlines. Lucera has approved a $514 million expansion of its Caraway mine in Botswana. So that is expected to extend the mine's operation life for 20 years until 2040. So a good sign for the diamond industry. And here we have another story that De Beers sales show steady rebound in the diamond market. And this is by Cecilia Jamazmi. De Beers, the world's largest diamond producer by value, said today that it had sold about $515 million worth of rough diamonds during its latest event, making it the biggest sale since February and the largest total for this time of year since 2016. Diamonds are making a comeback and you're starting to see investment. As it says here, we have a quote from Anish Agarwal, a partner at specialist diamond advisory firm Gemdax, who told Bloomberg in June, quote, the rough market is hot. That's enthusiastic buying across all rough categories. There are supply shortages at the moment. That's creating a sense of scarcity at every stage of the pipeline. So as the world turns, now diamonds once thought dead because of the lab-grown diamond breakthrough are now seeing supply shortages. So just goes to show you're never sure where things might turn up. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. We'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on September 14th, the 10-year bond is at 1.343%. So that is down 0.021% from last week. And that is according to CNBC. So 10-year bond more or less holding steady. And turning to our precious metals, gold is trading at $1,787.67 per ounce. That is $25 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $23.67 per ounce. That is $0.69 lower than last week. Platinum is also trading lower at $955.88 per ounce. That is $67 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,053.78 per ounce. That is 
and $43 lower than last week's quote. And turning to our industrial metals, we have an update now. I talked to IT. We did solve the little issue. I'm not sure exactly what happened, if it was Labor Day or if there was a glitch. But we do have new industrial metal prices. Copper is trading at $4.32 per pound. That is $0.08 cents higher than two weeks ago. Aluminum is trading at $1.31 per pound. That is $0.10 cents higher. And lead is trading $0.05 cents lower at $1.07 per pound. Nickel breaks $9 to $9.24 per pound. So that is $0.66 cents higher than two weeks ago. So nickel on a tear. Tin is also higher at $15.76 per pound. So that is $0.13 cents higher. Cobalt is also higher at $23.19 per pound. That is $0.36 cents higher. And zinc is at $1.40, five cents higher. So what do we see? Industrial metals are looking threateningly higher while precious metals are down, stagnate and are down. All four are down. So again, if you're trying to protect yourself from inflation, copper has been a much safer move than precious metals, which are traditionally thought to be the haven that one goes to in those scenarios. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Jeffrey Christian, managing partner at CPM Group. And Jeffrey Christian, in a sense, in this business, is a man who needs no introduction. He is a world-renowned expert in precious metals, and he has been in this business for decades. And it is always an honor and a pleasure to have him on. And he talks about complexity and the markets the uncertainty, the precious metals, copper, and EVs. There's a lot to sink your teeth into on this one. So I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining me today, I'm very pleased to welcome Jeffrey Christian, managing partner of CPM Group. It's his third time on the program with me, at least, and he's probably one of our favorite guests here for what I call his sober commentary on the precious metals market. And so, Jeffrey, welcome to the podcast once again. Thanks for having me back. It's always a pleasure. So tell me, as I look at the September as our sort of new year of sorts is beginning here, I sort of see a news cycle in search of a story right now. I feel like the stock market all of kind of macro is kind of, it feels like it's waiting for something to happen. Inflation, deflation, it seems like everything's in a stasis of sorts. Uh, what is your perspective on where we are right now from a macro perspective? I think right now we're at a period of time that is extremely complex. You know, the world's always complex. And I think right now, it, we're sort of at a vertex of a number of political, economic, financial issues and the pandemic, uh, which have increased the complexity of where we are economically. And markets don't like complexity. They like a very simple black and white story. And you know, prior to the advent of a series of books, I used to say the markets think in terms of black and white, but reality is a, a spectrum of shades of gray. 
And, and that is true. And I think right now in September, what we're seeing is a lot of complex issues, inflation, money supply, government fiscal policies, the pandemic, interest rates, currency rates, all of those factors are at points where their complexity has increased and the uncertainty about what they're going to be in the next two weeks, the next month, the next three months, the next 12 months has risen. And markets don't deal well with that. You know, uh, it's the old two-handed economist, I think. People want to call me up and say, hey, should I buy or sell gold or silver or the dollar or oil or copper or platinum or palladium? And when we start saying, well, here are the positives and here are the negatives, and maybe it's got a 60-40% ratio of positive to, to negative. They say, well, I really want something that's like, hey, Jeff, yeah, just tell me, buy gold. And it's just not there right now. I mean, you have rising inflation. We happen to agree with the Fed and other monetary authorities and mainstream economists that it's a lot of transitory issues. But the, the story is very complex. And when you say, when somebody says, well, is are the inflation statistics we're seeing transitory? Our answer is most of them. But there are some that are uh, more, more secular uh, and longer term that need to be aware of. And there continues to be and is an increasing number of deflationary pressures in the economy that, that are being masked right now by the transitory issues. And you can go through every topic and raise the complexity level. And that makes it hard for asset managers to make a decision. Okay, excellent. I like how you bring up the complexity. And I, th I think this is actually quite an interesting way of framing it, which is in terms of complexity. So to me, like, do you start looking at stuff like complexity theory? And because uh, it sounds to traditionally, as my general understanding of complexity is the more complex things get, the more delicate and fragile they get. Is that does that factor in at all in how 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 you see where things might go or the risk involved? Yes, to an extent. You know, first off, yeah, we haven't started looking at complexity theory. We've been looking at complexity theory since the seventies. <laughs> I mean, uh, okay. You know, there there are two sayings that I'll, I'll give you. One was by some fellow in the forties who said, "There's no issue, no matter how complex an issue is." on further investigation, you can see that it's more complex than you think it is. And the other one was a client of mine who said, you know, Jeff Christian thinks that his job is to take a simple question and make a complex answer. And, and so, I mean, things have always been complex, but that, that varies. Now, there is a belief that more complex systems can break down and do break down more often than more simplex systems. I'm not sure that that's actually true. Obviously, with a more complex economic and financial uh, environment, you have more moving parts, more things that can go wrong, and you have more people who can make bad decisions uh, or just the wrong decisions, not necessarily bad decisions, but they can get their analysis wrong and do something that upsets the apple cart. But I think that if you look at it quantitatively, you'll find that complex systems don't necessarily cause more problems than simplex 
systems. And, and you, what you really need to do is learn to live with the complexity and understand it and, and don't fall into the trap of, you know, give me the five minute answer and I'm going to go make my investment. Right. Right. And so is your general advice then, if we were to be very general about it, would it simply be uh, diversification? Because it, it sounds to me if you kind of, if there's no kind of easy answers uh, to, you know, uh, you know, just a simple way to make money, like you're saying, these investors want, they just want a simple 10 or 20% for the year, probably a lot of these guys. And uh, maybe there's no simple answer to that, because maybe it can be down. Do you just simply preach uh, diversification then? Or, or is it more complex than that? Well, we're always talking about diversification. And we're always talking about hedging. And like with hedging, you know, the classic question is, should I hedge when the price is, if I'm a buyer, should I hedge when the price is high or low or in between? And it's true for sellers as well as buyers. And our answer is always, you should always be hedging. You should always be diversified. But the level of diversification and the allocation within that diversification changes given the circumstances. So right now we're looking at uh, and, you know, it's very funny because in late July, we said, look, we think that the gold price and the silver price are going to fall in August and then they're going to pick themselves up. And we don't want to tell you where we think they're going in September because we think September is going to be an extremely volatile month where we're changing over. And uh, with reference to Green Day, I said, you know, don't wake me up in September because I'm going to be awake at when September ends. Uh, because I'm going to be awake because it's going to be a wild month. And that's exactly what's proving out. You know, it's, it's that time where people are saying, wait a second, where it is. So it's a matter of not saying, yeah, you should be diversifying. It's a matter of what are your allocations within your diversification. Right now, for example, we think that you should be probably more heavily weighted in gold and silver than you have been in, in, in the past or, you know, and the past might be the last two months or it might be the last five years, depending on who you are and what your situation is. So it's, it's a matter of allocating within that diversification, given where you think the probabilities are for rising or falling dollar, oil prices, economic activity, inflation, interest rates, and all of those other factors that cause the markets, not just gold and silver, but stock market, the bond market to move one way or the other. So that makes perfect sense to me. So before we move on to the metals and just taking a look at those, uh, what are clients talking to you about? Like, is there sort of a general concern that you're finding? Because you talk to people all over the world. Again, you're one of the most kind of renowned precious metals. I don't know if I'd call you a forecaster, but you probably are a forecaster and just like experts. Uh, what are people asking you about? Is there a sort of a general concern that you can sort of uh, discern? My boss back in the early 80s when I had one used to say, Jeff, we don't forecast, we project. We look at where we are today and we say, you know, projecting where we are today, where we think it's going. You know? So the topics at hand right now, inflation, What's really going on with inflation? Is it transitory? What's the outlook for inflation? The dollar, uh, the stock market, uh, mm -hmm. interest rates, 
and international relations. Uh, you know, I was on the phone with somebody in Asia this morning for the better part of an hour, and and a big part of the discussion was the fact that you know Europe and North America have an increasingly hostile stance toward China, which is limiting the flow of capital out of China into the rest of the world. So I think those are the major topics. They're more macroeconomic. Um, and, and one of the things that you see, and I guess this has always been common in the market, there are these extreme views. So one, one of the banks came out today and said, hey, you know, the stock market, the Dow Jones, S&P, could be 5% lower by the end of the year. And we agree with that. You know, that's a reasonable thing. But if you go on the internet and you say, you know, stock market projections, you find all these people saying stock market could lose 80% or 50% or 90% by by Christmas. You know, it's like, no, you know, that's that's possible, but it's highly improbable. And and so what we find is we're talking about all those topics to our clients, but we're also trying to get them to steady their breathing and say, let's not talk about what's possible. Let's talk about probabilities. Yeah, much more probable that the S&P is going to be exactly where it is four months from now than, than that it's going to be 50% lower. That's right. It's sort of like save on the drama and just uh, don't be afraid to be a little boring in your projection, right? Uh, right. It's like, yeah, I mean, because what plays on YouTube, to your point, is the stock market is going to be down 80% in four months. So you better you better panic sell right away. Otherwise, you're going to get caught in it. Um, okay, very good. That's, that's, that's very in interesting. It does almost seem like the financial news is boiling down to these four or five points that you mentioned, you know, inflation, the dollar, stocks, interest rates, international relations. You know, uh, it's, it's, as complex as it is, it's actually quite, you know, same old few themes in a sense that everybody, everybody seems to be concerned about. Now, so you're talking about inflation, and let's talk about the metals then. And you said that gold uh, you thought was kind of uh, attractive, and I could see why. I mean, it's below $1,800 last I checked here. So kind of at the bottom end of its range, that it seems to be range-bound the last, I don't know, year or so. So tell us about gold. What are you seeing? What's exciting you? Uh, what's going on? Well, obviously, gold is really investor-driven, uh, the price. Uh, and investors got very excited in the middle of 2019. And then again, in the middle of 2020, they bid gold up to a record price. It, it has come off since that time, but it's still very high. One of the most interesting things that we see in the gold market is that really starting in March, March, April, May, June, into July, more central banks have been buying more gold at prices around $1,800, you know, 1780 to 1840, uh, which is where the price has been for most of that period of time. Central banks, not the usual buyers over the last decade, not China, not Russia, not Kazakhstan. Uh, actually, I think Kazakhstan had sold some and then it bought a little bit more. Russia actually was a seller last year. But other central banks have been buying gold at $1,800. And that to us is a long-term and a short-term positive factor because central banks are much more price sensitive than private investors. And they're saying to themselves, and it's you know visible in the market, that 
from a long-term perspective, they think $1,800 is an attractive or a suitable price at which to buy gold. These are central banks that, you know, 10 years ago said, I will buy below $1,000, but not above $1,000. Then it was like, uh, I'll buy at $1,200, $1,300, but not $1,800. And now $1,800 is a buy level. And I think that's a very significant factor. Uh, in terms of the price and price outlook, central banks are good uh, that they're buying more. That's a very positive sign for this, the price. But what we're really needing to see is investors, private sector investors, uh, buying more gold again. You know, they had bought a lot, as I said, you know, mid-2019, mid-2020, early 2021, they, there was a round of buying, and they've backed away since that time. And, and so we look at those macroeconomic factors that drive investment demand, and we say, when will these things probably trigger investors increasing their gold purchases again? And that that's really the main factor that we look at in our gold price projections. And, you know, frankly, we we have a more sanguine view of the economy right now and the dollar and interest rates and the stock market. So we think that the price sort of trends sideways to slightly higher for the next few quarters. But that given all of the economic and fiscal issues and political issues that are abroad in the world, sometime and maybe not until 2023, 2024, 2025, but at some point, there's going to be another wave of investment demand on top of the central bank buying, and that'll push the price back up uh, toward $2,000 and possibly higher. That makes a lot of sense to me. Like when I look at gold, I sort of see it's like it's one of the boringest trades in the world. But then when you zoom out, it just keeps climbing, but it feels like it's never doing anything. But if you go on a multi-year chart, it, it is doing something. And, and it's really interesting what you say about central banks and how they're buying now. Like in some respects, you actually see that as maybe a little concerning that that they might be concerned about, you know, all the money printing and everything. And that they think, you know what, we need to hedge because if this house of cards falls, we need to have something ready. I mean, that that's sort of what it tells me. Like it, you see the, hear the same thing that I see. No, you know, central banks don't, you know, that, that's like the gold bugs say, oh, yeah, this house of cards is going to fall, the dollar is going to collapse. <laughs> central banks don't no. see it that way. They say, you know, the dollar could well be the reserve, the de facto reserve currency of choice for decades to come, or it could fade away. But we have 62% of our monetary reserves in U.S. dollars. And that's probably more than we'd like to have. Uh, so there's a constant movement over the last 10, 20 years of central banks saying, can we diversify our monetary reserves to reduce our exposure to the dollar? And the problem is that there's so much liquidity in the dollar, thank you, U.S. government, uh, that the you know, it, the old joke uh, that uh, a Polish central banker told me in 1981, if you owe a bank enough, you own it. If the U.S. owes the world enough that it kind of owns it, you know, and the central banks around the world say, okay, we've got 62% of our assets in the dollar. In the long run, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now, we hope to move to a multipolar international currency regime system and, and have greater liquidity in these other currencies. But it's just not there now. 
So if we have net inflows of dollars on a monthly basis and a current account basis, we will take some of those dollars and buy euros and pounds and Swiss franc and Japanese yen and other currencies and we'll buy some gold. So you don't see this wholesale panic that the whole house of cards is going to fall. What you see is a view that we really would like to reduce our exposure to the dollar and increase the liquidity in other currency markets and gold. Now, the problem with other currency markets is the relative value of currencies, right? For you to say, well, let me get rid of a lot of dollars and buy a lot of euros, you have to be more positive about the European, uh, the Eurozone's economic prospects than you are of the US. And when you look at the comparative economics, that's a real hard argument to make. You know, the US, for all of its warts, uh, has a lot of comparative advantages compared to the UK, the EU, Switzerland, and Japan uh, at, at present. So it's hard for a central banker to sort of balance, okay, I'd like to reduce my exposure to the dollar. But let's be honest, the dollar has the potential to hold up very strongly against these other currencies because the U.S. economy has so much more going for it in terms of its comparative advantages. So in that environment, maybe I'll buy some gold. I, I had a, a client in the early 90s uh, who made a very prominent fortune by betting against all the currencies in what was then the European snake, uh, the EMU. Uh, and I was up there talking to them about gold. And they, they were wrapping up their, their currency discussion. And, and the MD said, you know, Jeff, which European currency would you buy at this time? And I said, none of them. And this was like maybe a month or two before the, the European monetary system hit that bump and, and all of those currencies fell. And that company actually, it's interesting, they got blamed for the decline. They are actually buying into the decline because they had sold earlier. They had taken short positions on those currencies. And when the crash occurred in the European monetary system, they were buying those currencies back uh, and, and, and profiting from their previous short positions. But various governments around the world blamed them for the sell-off. Well, they might have been responsible because, you know, the fact was that people saw them going short and said, hey, those guys are smarter than us. Maybe we should go short too but they were actually buying when the price was collapsing. So I think that central banks look at it that way and they say, yeah, we'd kind of like to diversify our portfolio. Betting on the Eurozone compared to the US is a bad bet right now. Gold looks expensive at $1,800, but maybe it's not as expensive looking at $1,800 now as it was two years ago. Well, exactly. I mean, I mean, it's all relative, right? I mean, when you right. see a stock market at record highs, all of a sudden, eighteen hundred dollar gold doesn't seem so crazy when houses are, you know, fifty percent higher. Well, maybe gold's yeah. not so crazy at eighteen hundred dollars. Um, so interesting. So you'd say the central banks, in other words, they're as we were saying at the beginning of our conversation, they're diversifying their portfolio as responsible stewards of the, the central banks. I mean, it's not, yeah. uh, uh, as I was saying, a house of cards, you know, uh, accidentally, uh, it's like the boring answer is sometimes the, the, 
the more accurate one. Okay, so do you have a view on the U.S. dollar, actually, before we begin? Because that's crucial to all, isn't it? Like, what's your view, six months or a year or however long you want to take? Uh, what's your view of the dollar? Our view for the dollar over the next six months, six to 12 months, is that it probably moves in a relatively volatile fashion sideways with a little bit of a downward bias. So we don't see it collapsing, but we don't necessarily see it rising either. And, you know, if you look at it, and I, we had a couple of interesting charts in a video a few weeks ago where, you know, where we had a chart from like March, one of these marketing groups that, you know, sells on fear. And they had this chart of the dollar with no scale. And it's from March until July and, and the dollar and was down. And they said, you know, the dollar is collapsing already. And then the next chart was our view of the dollar since 1971 when it was floated. And you could see that the dollar had dropped from the top end of its, it's been in a, a narrow trading range from 2015 till now. And it dropped from the top of that range to the bottom of that range. And it was still something like 60% higher than the previous range that existed from 2004 to 2015. So, the dollar's showing a lot more strength than the fear mongers would have you think. And yeah, it's shown some weakness over the last six months, but it's still within that range that we've seen since 2015. And our view is it's probably going to stay in that range for a while because, again, the U.S. economy has some better outlooks right now than its major trading counterparts. Yeah, I, I think uh, that all sounds very reasonable. And uh, yeah, it's it may be down a little bit, but it sure isn't out. And frankly, it looks fairly strong. Now, as far as rates, very quickly, too, because I do want to get metals before we go. Uh, any thoughts on interest rates? Is that kind of uh, another way of describing what you just described? Or is it uh, is there more to add when we look at there, the, the 10-year bond or something? There are significant differences between interest rates and adult. Talking about benchmark rates, UST bills, UST bonds, you know, we see them staying low for an extended period of time, a little bit of upward pressure. If you look at the the dot plots from the Fed FOMC members, you know, they're talking about interest rates staying low for the next 12 to 14 months, maybe moving up into that, you know, I guess 10-year bonds are about 1.76, but T-bills are like still 25 bips. Moving up somewhat over the next year or so, and then at the possibility that by 2023 or so, you're you're testing 2%, maybe even 2.5%. Now, if you have inflation okay. of 2 to 4%, that means you still have negative real returns on your T-bills. Uh, so we're not particularly scared. We see some upward pressure on interest rates, uh, but we also say, look, you know, the Fed has said, you know, Powell said uh, negative T-bill rates may persist for the next decade. And again, you know, some people who don't really know their history or even near-term history made a big deal out of that. But the fact is that T-bills have been negative for most of the time since 2008. So for the last 13 years, we've had negative T-bill rates. And he's saying, yeah, this extended period, unprecedented extended period of negative real interest rates over the last 13 years may go on for the next 10 years. And that factors right into, you know, what I've been saying about the long-term economic outlook and the long-term dollar outlook. 
uh, you know, any major changes are probably a decade or longer away. Excellent. And I assume this would be favorable for metals then. Uh, so turning to, say, silver, what's your view on silver? Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit sad. You know, we, we said that we thought the price would fall sharply in uh, August. And by sharply, we meant down to $22 or $22.50. And it did, like in the first week of August, but then it strengthened. And, and once we got into September, our view was, okay, that low is behind us, and we think that the silver price will strengthen now for the next four months. And of course, it promptly fell, <laughs> and it's off like sixty cents today alone. But we do think that there's a support for silver around twenty-two fifty, twenty-three. Uh, it's around twenty-three forty right now as we're speaking in the COMEX, and we do think that the price moves higher. We see a lot of resistance, you know, 2450, 26, 28. Uh, so we think that the price will trend higher over the next four months and over the next 12 months, but that there's a lot of resistance in that level. And, you know, the resistance is coming from fabricators, but it's also coming from investors. So you saw a tremendous amount of investment demand for silver in the first two or three months of this year. And then you've seen investors back away in some markets, like the ETFs, uh, since April. Coin sales are still holding up strong. So investors are interested in silver, but there's some disillusionment because there were a lot of people who expected silver to be 30 or 50 or $100 by now, and instead yeah. it's 24 Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think the investor sentiment is one of disappointment, say, with gold and silver, as too slow, you know, they're just not mm -hmm. moving fast enough. Why am I in this when I could be in the stock market, crypto, or you know, commodities, uh, in other commodities, industrial commodities? And, and then that brings us to copper. What are your thoughts on copper? And you know, I don't know if that factors into inflation at all. I mean, I remember you saying that you don't expect copper to go too, too crazy because we're just going to have more supply coming online when that happens. Are you basically still of that view? Yeah, yeah, copper's stronger than I thought it would be. I think that there is some scope for upward uh, pre pressure on copper, short term and long term. But we're not as bullish as some people are from a long term perspective. Partly because, yeah, there are a lot of copper reserves and resources out there. They haven't necessarily been developed into mining operations, but they are there should the demand meet. And then we also think that. There are probably overly optimistic expectations about how fast electric vehicles will take market share. And consequently, there's probably overly optimistic expectations about how much copper will be needed in the electric vehicle industry and in the automotive industry. So we think that from a longer term perspective, we're, we are bullish on copper, but our expectations are more modest than, say, the market consensus. Yeah, and this takes us to exactly where I wanted to go because you have been a longtime skeptic of, say, EVs or electric vehicles, if I understand your position correctly. So, and you were just saying that you thought the uh, projections are overly optimistic. So, so what is your view right now? I mean, lithium has been doing quite well. It's had quite a run. All the lithium stocks in the last since last December, pretty spectacular, actually. Uh, do you think this is all hype? It's not all hype. Clearly, electric vehicles are the at least intermediate term winners 
in the in the contest like what is the future of automotive propulsion technology and electric vehicles right now are the forefront for taking that and they will take market share the question is you know if we were at six percent market share last year and that's not really an accurate measure because it was six percent of a severely contracted market you know but it was like four and a half million vehicles last year. It was two million vehicles in 2019, two million vehicles in in 2018 in a market that is something like 90 million vehicles a year. So it's a relatively small portion. And the question is, does it go to 12% market share by 2030? Or does it go to 30%? Or does it go to 50%? And the the situation is, I mean, when you talk about complexity and you talk about uncertainty, this is this is classic. And we, we struggle with it internally all the time, but you have people like, for example, Biden saying, oh, I really want to see 35% of the vehicles being made in, in 2035, uh, or half of the vehicles being made in 2035 being electric. And you look and you say, okay, so where are you going to get the lithium, the copper, the high-purity manganese sulfate, the high-purity cobalt, all of the motors, all of the con uh, controllers, and the electricity? and the electricity distribution system. Yeah, you look at this outrageously enormous, which it's not, you know, it's a very modest infrastructure bill that the government has passed. And it has an enormous amount of money for building chargers, electric vehicle charging stations across the country. And then you say, okay, now how many electric vehicle charging stations do we really need if we're gonna have 30%, let alone 50% or more vehicles being electric, and you say, oh, we're just touching a fraction, a small fraction of what's needed here. So the infrastructure to make a rapid move to electric vehicles is not there. The electricity is not there. The distribution system is not there. And the, infra, uh, the, the OEM manufacturing capacity for, for the, the motors, the controllers, and all of the components and the batteries is not there. So I think that electric vehicles are going to take market share. The question I have is how fast can they take market share? And the answer is clouded by these aspirational comments by politicians who say, oh, well, I don't want to see any more gasoline powered or petroleum powered or diesel powered uh, vehicles by 2040 in my country. Well, that's just not going to happen. You know, if you look at the IEA, they go to 2040 and, and, and you still have more energy coming from natural gas petroleum and coal than you do from renewables. You go to 2050 and renewables have, have taken third place after natural gas and petroleum, and coal has declined back to the levels at 2008, which were very high levels, historically high levels for coal uh, market share in electricity uh, energy generation. So I think the transition is going to be a lot slower. And then you have whole issues about, well, are electric vehicles the interim technology of choice? And does it do they get replaced by hydrogen engines or something else that comes along that we don't even see right now? And that uncertainty then feeds into that whole issue of you have all these OEM manufacturers and you know the auto industry saying, I, I don't need 2 million or 4 million or 6 million motors. I need 30 or 50 or 100 million motors. You need to build those factories. But I'm not going to give you offtake agreements because, quite frankly, I may never need those motors because some other technology may supplant it. And so the OEM manufacturers say, well, you want me to build 
factories to build these motors and controllers and batteries, et cetera, but you may not need them. So there's a lot of financial and managerial constraints on how fast we can move to electric vehicles that tend to be overruled. I'll go back to where we started. You know, this is a complex issue that needs to be solved. And it, the complexity is being masked by people who say, oh no, we'll go to electric vehicles. And then on top of all of that, the killer is electric vehicles don't help carbon dioxide emissions on a global basis. They, mm. they shift the carbon dioxide production from where the car is run to where the electricity is being generated. And very, it very anything, interesting. It doesn't do anything to meet the Paris Accord carbon dioxide emission standards. <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. So um, you have the chance of a political backlash. You know, half of the electric vehicles bought last year globally were bought by people who are worried about climate change. When they realize that an electric vehicle doesn't do anything for climate change and carbon dioxide production, they're going to be really uh, a little bit disappointed. A little bit disappointed. Very good. Okay. And final question uh, before you go, is there anything we missed? Is there any metal that we haven't talked about that you think we should, that really is catching your eye right now that we should be uh, paying attention to or that something dramatic is going on? Well, I think manganese is the big one and that goes into the electric vehicle business. Uh, but it's not manganese metal because, you know, 98% of the manganese used right now goes into steel through manganese ore or ferromanganese. And it, it's the high purity electrolytic manganese metal and the high purity uh, manganese sulfate. And, and so it's really a chemical industry investment as opposed to a metals mining investment right now. And you know we're, we're doing a lot of work on manganese and all of a sudden we find that we have competition in terms of providing research into high purity manganese metal. It, it sounds like a very specialized uh, area. So, okay, well maybe we'll go deeper into manganese next time and see uh, what all the supply constraints might be and everything. Jeffrey Christian, thank you for joining us. Jeffrey Christian, Managing Partner from CPM Group. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Adrian, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you, dear listener. Each and every week, we have a global mining symposium coming up. So do check the website at events.northernminer.com. You can still register and it is free. And if you want to sponsor, there may be some late opportunities. It is on September 22nd and 23rd. Registration is now open. So don't miss that. I'd like to thank Jeffrey Christian once again. And if you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory and tell your friends. And until next week, take care.